five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. On this week's episode of the Space Economy Podcast, we have something a little different for you. But before we can hear about this week's episode, I want to mention that we're working on something new. I can't say much yet, but as a result, we're going back to the podcast being published every other week for now. Stay tuned for more information shortly. Okay. Scott Irwin works in the Space Vehicles Directorate of the Air Force Research Laboratory. The AFRL is all about the cutting edge, and they describe themselves as the discovery, development, and delivery of warfighting technologies for air, space, and cyberspace forces. So naturally, artificial intelligence is part of their R&D portfolio. In this Future in Space Operations talk of February 24, 2021, Irwin discusses how AI is an emerging technology for contested space by describing the recent technological advancements using gaming tools. You might be surprised how fast things are moving, and that progress might scare you a bit. The presentation and video are available on our website. Listen in. Great. Hey, uh, thanks, Harley, Dan, everybody, for having me today. Um, uh, just wanted to let everybody know this is a world premiere. I got the public release on this presentation uh, no less than an hour before I got to send it to Dan. So uh, um, comments are, are very much welcome in terms of uh, feedback and what you like, what you don't like, because I now that I went through the work to get it approved, I'm damn well going to give it a few times. So, um, yeah, so uh, I gave a version of this talk, a different version of this talk a while back for a Space Force um, Innovation Series talk, and, and Harley um, thought that this group might be interested in it. And so I will give you kind of a slightly tweaked version of it. Um, I'm Scott Irwin. I work at Space Vehicles Directorate out at Air Force Research Laboratory. Um, you know, as you can see on slide one, the cover slide, um, you know, with the stand-up of the Space Force, uh, the, we, uh, those of us in Space Vehicles Directorate, which is where I've been since 97, um, kind of have some uh, higher-level visibility support, brand name recognition. And this talk's going to be about a project I'm working uh, called Artificial Intelligence Opponent for Contested Space, IOX for short, because we have to have an acronym, um, which is kind of intermingled, if you will, or, or interwoven with the reason why, you know, Space Force really got stood up. So if you go to slide two, I'll just jump right into things. And uh, I believe Harvey and Dan told me that if there's questions, people are just going to jump in. So uh, I'll take a breath every once in a while and give people a chance to jump in, but otherwise I'll keep moving. So um, the first thing I'm going to talk a little bit about is uh, just kind of a general discussion about like game complexity, um, because that factors into kind of the rest of the talk. So um, uh, if you've been following the news recently, you've probably heard something about the fact that um, a lot of the um, newest, latest, and greatest artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms are starting to do really well at playing um, games against humans and beating humans. And, you know, this started back in, I mean, in a serious way, it, it started um, 
even going back, I guess, to the 60s and 70s, um, but but in a, in a more publicly well-known way with a lot more advances in the early 90s, um, you started seeing computers like Deep Blue and things like that start to play um, well-known chess champions, Gary Kasparov, people like that, and starting to win. You know, you can argue back and forth as to whether it was a rigged match or not. But, um, you know, fast forward 10 years to, say, 2005, it's definitely no longer a rigged match other than the fact that, you know, statistically speaking, none of the 7 billion humans on the planet can beat the best, um, you know, machine learning based, um, well, expert system slash machine learning based um, uh, computer programs anymore. It's, I mean, statistically speaking speaking, you're not going to win. You might get lucky and make a move and get a kind of pathological win every once in a while, but we are clearly outclassed in chess um, by by algorithms at this point. Um, but the AI community um, didn't rest on its laurels there, but, but really the point of chart one is to talk about the complexity of games because the ability of the computer programs to beat a human is kind of intermingled with how complicated the game is for them to explore and learn how to win. So, you know, you can start with something as simple as tic-tac-toe, which is essentially from a game theory point of view solved. There's, you know, given a first move by somebody, what the other person should do is a known quantity. It's mathematically you know, able to be written out. Uh, chess, not so much so. I mean, I don't have the statistics at my fingers, but I believe there's more chess positions, more legal chess positions in terms of where pieces could be on the board um, than there's atoms in, I don't remember if it's the universe or, or what have you. Um, but still, in the sense of other games, it's still fairly simple, which is why people went after it directly after things like checkers and such. Um what the community is looking at, was looking at after that was Go. Go is, if you're not familiar with it, sometimes called, um, uh, well, I mean, the closest thing I've seen to it in the States was Othello, although it's not anywhere near the same game, but 19 by 19 board instead of an 8 by 8 board. Uh, only two kinds of pieces, white and black, and roughly speaking, your objective is to encircle large sections of the board and, and you get points essentially for the area you surround. Um, considered to be, you know, mathematically you can see that it's more complicated than chess in some sense. Um, and then there's video games. The next two are video games. StarCraft II, which is a um, single player playing against a single player, but you're controlling uh, up to 200 units on the board at a time, and the board can be up to um, uh, 96 by 96 tiles, things like that. So um, just seriously complicated. Um, and so on and so forth. And, and the question that really the whole talk is going to be based around is, you know, if I was to put a military war game down here, what would its complexity be? And how far away is the complexity of a military war game from some of the, you know, complicated video games or simulation-based games that are out there right now? And how well would an AI do playing it against a person or against itself? So that's really what underpins this talk. Now, I work at Space Vehicles Directorate, so it's obviously going to have a space flavor, but um, as you'll see in the talk, other people are looking at this in other domains as well. I have the XKCD uh, picture on the side because the, if you haven't read that comic, you should definitely go look it up. He is really great at taking complicated information and putting it into very digestible and yet still technically accurate forms. He's quite popular in the tech circles if you haven't seen him already. All right, so go to slide three, please. Actually, let me pause there if there's a question. 
No? Okay. All right. So slide three is about Go. I gave you kind of the top-level summary of it here, but if you haven't been uh, following it again, there's kind of a picture there in the middle of the slide about what the board looks like, white and black pieces trying to surround each other and capture areas. Um, in 2016, uh, DeepMind um, kind of came public with the with the their intent to produce a program that could beat people at Go. And again, only in 2000, mid 2000s is when kind of chess fell, fell behind. So, and Go is considered again, kind of exponentially more complicated in terms of positions and such. So, um, uh, DeepMind produces a program called AlphaGo. It is a combination, it's based on deep neural networks, but it's a combination of learning how to play via ingesting human-played games in the past and learning what works and doesn't work from that. I think there was about 160,000 uh, Go-played Go games that were ingested by AlphaGo in order for it to get a warm start on how to play. But that wasn't enough. And so AlphaGo um, added on top of that uh, reinforcement learning, which is a kind of a uh, a learn by doing technique, if you will, where it plays a game essentially against a slightly different version of itself or a, a version of itself with a different random seed. And at the end, one of those two players is going to win. And that information is used to update the networks inside of the um, algorithm and, and uh, you know, over time, learn, make it, have it learn how to play better by actually generating its own data, essentially just generating its own games, play games. Um, so in 2016, uh, DeepMind challenged Lisa Dole, who was a ninth Don, I guess, in Go. They use black belt uh, ranks. Um, chess, uh, Go champion, professional Go player, did did that for a living. I, I can't remember if he played eight hours a day since he was 12 or 12 hours a day since he was eight. Um, but uh, there's actually a documentary on this whole thing called AlphaGo, which is uh, at the top of the picture there. Uh, it was on Netflix. I'm not sure if it still is, but it's really interesting and somewhat depressing to watch. I highly recommend it. So they challenge uh, Lee to uh, five matches, and in the first time it meets essentially the World Go champion, it, the algorithm beats him four games out of five. Um, the one game that he won in post-game analysis, um, you know, he made what the computer program considered to be like a probability zero move. Nobody would do this, and once it once he did do that, the computer had done nothing to defend itself against that because it considered it statistically unlikely, and so it kind of fell apart. But in the other games, he was soundly beaten. And if you watch the show, it's kind of depressing because you're watching this guy, you know, have what he does for a living taken away from him. It's the old uh, John Henry versus the steam engine kind of a thing in real time. Um, but in the end, none of the human players, none of the Go masters really were able to understand what this algorithm was doing. It was playing in a very non-human way. Um, they talked about the fact that, you know, Go is so complicated that humans have to use um, the margin of victory as measured by the board game state right now as a proxy for eventual victory at the end of the game. In other words, if I'm ahead of you by a lot, you're unlikely to catch up to me, and so therefore I'm probably going to win. So the moves tend to be... Um, you know, in an optimization sense, somewhat myopic because humans are simply not able to run the game that far out, whereas AlphaGo actually used victory as a proxy for victory and was running games out much further than humans can. Um, so I guess all I'll say to kind of close this slide off is that um, in the end, DeepMind produced another algorithm called AlphaStar. AlphaStar didn't ingest the 160,000 games that humans had played. It 
started from zero, not knowing even the rules of the game, and played against itself, used purely uh, reinforcement learning to play against itself. And in the end, AlphaStar beat AlphaGo. One conclusion you could draw from that is we made AlphaGo worse by showing it how humans played, instead of just letting it start from scratch and have no a priori knowledge about how to play the game. And uh, the last picture that's on the far <coughs> right-hand side of this slide, um, Lisa Dole has quit. He no longer plays Go, even though he was a professional Go player. He doesn't see the point because a machine can beat him, so why would I do this anymore? Okay, so on slide four, um, DeepMind didn't stop there. The next game they picked was something called, um, as I mentioned earlier, StarCraft II. StarCraft II is a PC game. Um, I'm about 50, and I knew about it, and I played it. So if you're in that ballpark, you may may know something about this. But um, again, from a so StarCraft II represents a huge leap in complexity, even bigger than the leap between chess and Go, for three reasons. First of all, just from a board number of units, yada, 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 in all the ways that Go is more complicated than chess, StarCraft is more complicated than Go in all of those ways, in terms of the number of um, places a piece can be put, how many pieces there are, diversity of pieces, all of that. So just from a straight-up mathematical complexity, it's more, it's worse. But there's two other elements to StarCraft II that make it a huge leap in terms of complexity. First of all, it is no longer a full information game. It is a partial information game. When you start a game of StarCraft, you don't even know what the board looks like. You have to send units out to explore it and understand what the terrain and the map actually looks like. Second of all, once you've done that, um, you may find your opponent's units on that map someplace, but you certainly won't know where they are forever after unless you keep somebody near enough to them that you can keep eyes on them. They will go off into some part of the map that you may very well have explored but no longer have any units to keep watch on, and now you don't know where they are anymore. So that switch from full information, I can see where everything is by looking at the board, to I only know what I've got, you know, eyes and ears out there to be able to see, generates a huge, massive mathematical complexity in terms of how these algorithms have to learn how to play the game. It just generates kind of a stochastic element to it. The second thing is that AlphaGo doesn't, or excuse me, that um, StarCraft II does not take turns. It's a real-time strategy game. As fast as you can make and implement your decisions with your mouse and your keyboard is as fast as your units reply. So now, if you're able to make quality decisions very quickly, that's a very much an advantage to you over another player. So, you know, in the big yellow box here on chart four, um, you can kind of see some of the numbers here. Uh, you know, I think somebody calculated 10 to the 26th actions per agent per time step possible. I don't even know what that is in terms of molecules and universes. Um, there's three races. There's multiple units per race. There's tech trees that can upgrade units. Um, and so in um, 2019, January of 2019, DeepMind took AlphaStar, essentially the same algorithm that it had used to play Go, and had it start to play, it had it play StarCraft against itself until it learned how to play very well. And in January of 2019, they had it play two professional StarCraft players. I had to say that to myself several times. Professional StarCraft player, you can make about $300,000 a year if you're really, really good playing StarCraft 2 and fill stadiums up in Korea. Um, and it was on a very restricted game. One race, one map, one scenario, 
blah, 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 blah. So we're extremely restricted. But, but the algorithm beat the professional players on that very restrictive set. What is somewhat frightening is within a year, by 30 October of 2019, AlphaStar had achieved grandmaster status, meaning, you know, per the yellow box, it can now beat 99.8% of human players on any game that meets regulation play requirements, any race, any map, yada, 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 yada. That's a massive amount of improvement in, in less than a year for this algorithm. Okay, so slide five, and I'll speed up here to get to the meat of this talk, but I just want to make sure you're sufficiently frightened before we get to that. Uh, poker, again, different algorithms, not deep mind this time, thank goodness, somebody else is good at this. Um, but this algorithm, Liberatus, which uh, was based on some work by Sandholm out of CMU, is able to beat professional poker players in the sense that after N games, it ends up with more money than the professional poker players have. Um, which means it knows how to bluff. It can lie. It knows how to deceive people. It doesn't have a tell. Somebody could say that that's not fair, but of course, unless you give the algorithm a camera, it's not going to be able to see other people's tells either. So, All right, and then on slide six, and this will be the last um, try-to-scare-you slide, um, DeepMind has now set their eyes on a game called Diplomacy. Diplomacy has been around for a very long time, um, certainly since I was in middle school if not before. I guess you know, it says right there, 1954. What's interesting about diplomacy is there's no dice. It is a game about essentially um, talking to other people um, who are playing the game, making alliances, and then breaking them at strategically important points so that you can end up uh, I think the map is kind of a pre-World War One Europe kind of map where you're trying to achieve political dominance over the subcontinent. And uh, so, so now you actually have to convince another human to support you. That's a big glass of water for an AI program. Um, and then also learn how to um, uh, break that agreement when it so suits you. So uh, I have two yellow quotes on slide six. The first is by the DeepMind people, and it's, you know, diplomacy focuses on building alliances and teamwork, and it all sounds very happy and light and, and all wonderful. Um, the quote in red below is from one of my space or one of our space scholars here out at the lab who played diplomacy quite a lot, and he said, "No, it's not about cooperation at all. It's about betraying people. Please don't, you know, teach me how to do." And then he intentionally cut his quote off halfway through to kind of make the point that this was a bad idea. So, um, all right. So I think uh, moving to slide seven. Hopefully, I've set the stage that you know this is i don't believe that we should ignore the potential for these algorithms to get very very good at games that are very very complicated um things that you know your average human on the street isn't going to be good at things that humans who have spent their whole lives getting good at are actually getting beat by so on slide 7 i have the xkcd conflict there and roughly speaking, with a few things like beer pong off the table, although there is a robot that can attack that apparently, um, we've we've gotten through almost everything except for the bottom block, which is you know computers may never outplay humans. And if you look at what's there, um, you know if you're familiar with Calvin and Hobbes and Calvin Ball, you make the rules as the game goes. So I think we're pretty safe on that one. You know you can keep score by things like you know uh, J versus J to seven and things like that. But uh, but more importantly, on the right-hand slide of slide seven is is this is Scott Irwin's quant qualitative, not quantitative, um, 
uh, kind of assessment of the situation. It appears that every time we make kind of a what I would consider some kind of an exponential or a logarithmic leap in complexity, again, non, non-quantitative, the time it's taking for the machine learning community, uh, the AI community, to uh, beat us at that next game of, of exponential or logarithmic um, complexity increase is going down. Um, in other words, we may be approaching some kind of asymptote. Now, uh, I think part of the explanation to that is, um, you know, as the game complexity is, is going up, we're getting worse in terms of a single person. The way we deal with complexity is to take complicated things, break them down into smaller, less complicated things, and assign teams of people. So how this curve would look if it was teams of people actually playing against a single AI, I don't know. Maybe it would be a little flatter or something like that. Um, there's already evidence that, like, human-machine teams, uh, sometimes called centaurs, can, can beat, um, you know, machines alone. So, in other words, having a, a chess program with a team of humans um, sometimes can beat some of the good chess programs. Um, and, and one thing that's interesting is in some of the games that people have looked at, there's one called Dota 2, which is played by a team of five people. Um, you have to kind of start asking yourself questions like, do you have to train up five separate AIs, and, and are they limited to communicate with each other in the same way a human would be in the sense that they have to use natural language or maybe they can use, you know, binary communication, but the data rate has to be limited to what humans can speak and things like that to kind of keep the comparison on an even keel. All right. So anyway, that's where things are in terms of computers playing games. Let's get to um, the people I work for, the military. So if you go to slide eight, um, if you were following this this summer, DARPA has a program called, or had a program called Alpha Dogfight, and their goal was to uh, have teams of people developing AIs um, and put those AIs into a flight simulator for a fighter aircraft. I think it was an F-16, if I'm not mistaken, um, and have the algorithms learn how to do a dogfight. So this is very similar to the first uh, StarCraft II game, very restrictive, guns only, dogfight, lots of constraints on, you know, hard deck and whatnot. Um, so it's a very restrictive kind of air-to-air engagement, and it's on a simulation. But uh, So they had the teams of AIs um, get in the cockpit, and they did round robins with each other, and AI versus AI across multiple companies, uh, the Heron Systems AI emerged as the victor. And then last August, they had the Heron AI go up against a human fighter pilot that teaches at the Nellis Air Force Base Weapons School. Well, he's a grad, I should say. He doesn't teach, but he's a grad of the Weapons School, so he's an Air Force fighter pilot. Um, call sign Banger, uh, real name kept anonymous, um, which is good because Heron AI splashed him five times out of five. Um, he never won any of the engagements. Now, again, very restrictive on a simulator, lots of, lots of caveats to that. But it's certainly not a not a failure. So um, my compatri- companions up at the Air Vehicles Directorate in DARPA are now looking at a follow-on program where they are going to um, put an AI into an actual live aircraft. This would be kind of like the first time we had an autonomous self-driving car. There will most assuredly be a pilot in there with the big red stop button and the ability to take over control of the aircraft at any moment. But um, the question is, you know, can the AI that essentially trained itself purely on simulation deal with the differences between the physical world and the simulation when it's actually behind the, real, the stick of a real aircraft? And then there's some quotes down there at the bottom, but uh, 
if you really think about it, what is the limiting factor in a in the agility of a fighter aircraft in a dogfight? Well, I mean, uh, I'm not a fighter pilot. I'm not even a pilot of any kind. I work in space, literally in a vacuum. But I hear uh, and seem to remember that we can certainly design a plane that can kill a person um, in terms of what it's able to do, G-loads and this, et cetera. So if you take the person out of the plane, um, you potentially have the situation where a competent, um, competitive AI pilot is now filing, flying a aerodynamically superior vehicle that a pilot can't fly in. And now you don't necessarily have to be better. You just have to be as good at or competitive with somebody in order to uh, win. So that's uh, kind of something to keep your eyes on if that's the world you live in. Okay, slide nine. Uh, the rest of the world is not is not not only is not uh, ignoring this, they are uh, actively pursuing a lot of these things. Uh, our friends in Australia, uh, who we work pretty closely with, um, you know, are are looking a lot at modeling war games um, and also about what we might do in terms of uh, bringing AI to the table here. Um, and our you know um, friends in China and the PLA are also looking at it as well. Um, if you look at some of the doctrinal stuff that's come out of China, it's explicit in the sense that they want to develop an AI advisor for their military that can um, provide recommendations, um, you know, on where to go uh, in the future uh, for situations that are densely complex and maybe difficult for humans to suss out quickly when time matters. Okay, so on slide 10, finally, we get to what Scott actually does for a living. So uh, what is my game? I work in Space Vehicles Directorate. We do space for a living, and, um, you know, Scott's Reader's Digest elevator speech is one of the main reasons that the Space Force was stood up um, as a separate service from the Air Force within the Department of the Air Force, was to focus on the protect and defend um, issues that are arising in the actual space domain. Uh, in other words, people... Um, challenging uh, our ability to operate freely in space, um, either, you know, that the effects that they produce don't have to come from space. Um, they could be jamming satellites from the ground. Um, but the bottom line is we have to actually worry about space as an actual operational, contested, adversarial environment in the future moving forward. So, um, so the question is, um, given that that's never been the case before, what are we treat what do we teach them to do from a tactics training strategy point of view? This has never happened before. We've never done this before. Um, so my idea was to bring uh, some of these AI approaches in and kind of see how they work on this new domain of conflict. Um, you know, if it was to work out well, what you would have as a use case for the product would be the uh, a, a an on-demand opponent that can have any level of competency you'd like, ranging from, you know, a beginner to play against other beginners to something that is potentially superhuman, so you can confront commanders with the inevitable Kobayashi Maru no-win situation. Um, I have met a lot of people who believe they do know what's going to happen and they are developing strategy and tactics. And I think it would be great to have somebody who didn't go to the same school that they did uh, test that out and see if that actually is going to work, especially somebody who isn't even human and doesn't play like human but is exploiting all of the options available to them. So, um, And then finally, if the machines do come up with something that works, how do we extract that from the machine and teach it to a person so the person can understand what that is and how to use that tactic. So there's some challenges and opportunities at the bottom here of slide 10. Um, it's a new operational domain. 
There is no historical data. There is no 160,000 played games of, you know, the next space war that we can feed into a machine and teach it. So that's kind of a downside in terms of these things, potentially. There are no space aces. There are no grandmasters. Uh, there's really no way to understand right now whether a, an algorithm is performing better than, you know, the best people because we don't know who the best people are. This has never happened before. Although, again, I can tell you there's a lot of people who will tell you they are the best people. Um, now, the opportunity is in the space we have what I would call dominant physics, and I don't mean to say that, like, you know, aerodynamics isn't a dominant physics. What I mean is um, the ability of a human to influence what's going to happen in space is extremely muted compared to, um, or at least I believe it is extremely muted compared to the ability of a human to affect things in other domains. You know, you are along for the ride with Kepler, and you can tweak that a little bit with thrusters, but unless you're carrying around a solid rocket motor, you're not going to wildly change your orbit on the fly. Um, and so the comparison would be something like in a space simulation of future engagement, how accurate is that to what would actually happen from a physics point of view to uh, an air combat simulation of an engagement versus the actual physical air combat versus, say, in the kind of extremely bad case, uh, urban building-to-building -building combat for the Army in an urban zone versus their physical reality of that. How good is the simulation to, to reality comparison across those three? I think in that case, the space one might come out um, uh, in the lead in the sense that they are very close to each other versus the other two. All right, so chart 11. Um, this is, no, this is the game I have come up with, and I'll walk you through this. Um, obviously, this is not going to be realistic. Uh, otherwise, I certainly wouldn't be giving an approved for public release talk about it. Um, space is different from other domains uh, in a lot of ways, not the least of which is security. But, um, but nonetheless, uh, I wanted to come up with a game that I could kind of put out there because the world's experts in um, AI and machine learning research, uh, surprise, surprise, don't work for the Department of Defense. They work for Google and Amazon, and they work in academia. And if we really want to get those people to um, show us what things can be done here, um, we need to be able to provide them some sense of what what we're worried about. Um, we did want to pose something in the space domain, though, because we want to make sure that things like our physics and the sensitivity of our physics, say, to small velocity changes and uh, propagation times and all of these other things are in there. You know, our, our reliance on fuel is a finite resource, and you go from being an asset to debris once you run out of that. So let me just describe the game quickly, and then I'll walk you through a few more points, and then we can wrap up with some time at the end for questions. So the game I came up with is basically capture the flag at the geostationary orbit. So uh, we're looking down at the kind of geostationary plane, if you will. Um, the green orbit there is the geostationary orbit. This is slide 11 if I didn't call it out. Each side has a base station, a red and a blue base station that are the circles on that slide. And each base has a kind of lightly shaded region around that, which I'm kind of calling the victory zone or the scoring zone, and you'll, I'll tell, tell you what that is in a minute. The base stations don't have thrusters. They can't maneuver. So they are doomed forever to just kind of orbit each other in 180 degree out of phase from each other for the entire game. Um, each base, each side also has several N, let's say, mobile units, the triangles on both both sides. 
The mobile units do have thrusters, and they can change their orbits. And so they can uh, move up or down from kind of the starting geo-orbit and, uh, you know, essentially drift relative to um, the immobile base stations, if you will, if we're in an Earth-centered Earth fixed frame. Um, and the goal of the game is to get one of your mobiles, fly it through the shaded region of your opponent so that you've, quote-unquote, captured the flag, and then once you have captured the flag, you have to drift back to your own base and get inside your own shaded region. And if you do that, you win. So that's winning. Now, we threw a couple of other rules on here um, to kind of make things a little spicy. So what happens when two mobiles get close? And we just specify some radius around each other. That's what close means, some a priori defined radius. Well, you know, uh, I didn't want to spend a huge amount of time coming up with realistic rules because that would just stop the whole thing from being able to be put out in the public anyway. So we're just using kind of air, 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 aircraft rules, for lack of a better word. doesn't make any sense at all because in space, you know, attitude and translation are decoupled, but we're going to use these anyway. So if two objects get within a certain distance, we look at their radius vector to each other and their velocity vectors, and if one of them is approaching from behind, quote-unquote, in terms of their velocity vectors, then the one in front loses. If they are coming at each other head-on, they both lose, and by lose, I mean they're taken out of the game. They they no longer um, are able to maneuver. They're no longer able to capture the flag. They're no longer able to win. Um, and uh, so, so that gives us uh, some ability to play a game where you use your mobile agents to essentially stop the other guy from winning by taking out other mobile agents. Um, simple two, you know, just kind of looking over at the right-hand side, simple two-body Keplerian dynamics, you know. Um, uh, I'll show you in a minute how we even simplify things further to kind of reduce the state and action space to make the game a little easier for the algorithms. Um, but we are using finite amount of fuel. Um, when you run out of fuel, you know, again, you can't do anything anymore. Um, and we also give a finite duration to the game. I think um, I think for this kind of game, with kind of the conditions we've started, we've started with it, we give them something like 30 days to play this game because it takes a long time to kind of get from one side of the planet to the other in in the near geo orbit without um, again having a solid rocket booster. Okay. So on slide 12, I'm not going to brief this in detail. I'm just going to do this very lightly so that I can explain the plots. We'll see here in a minute. So that game I just described is still intensely complicated, especially if you're a newbie neophyte to reinforcement learning like I am. My background is guidance, navigation, control, large flexible structures. But um, but the bottom line is we wanted to start with a game that was even simpler than that. So what we did um, for a lot of these algorithms, they love it if the game can be broken up into discrete things instead of continuous. So instead of each action being, you know, in the air world, what we would call a stick and throttle thing, where in space you would have to pick at each time you get to make an action. You get to pick not just the magnitude of your thrust up to some limit that I've provided, but also the direction in, in just two dimensions. That's still two continuous variables that you have to pick from, and that's rough sometimes for these algorithms. They like more discrete things to start off with, although they can handle continuous, some versions of them. So what we did is we decided to discretize both the state space and the action space. So on the on slide 12, on the left-hand side, we'll start with the state space. 
So what we did with the state space is rather than let you be in any orbit you want at any time, we defined, um, let's just call them racetrack orbits, one at GEO, which is kind of where everybody starts in the center, and then maybe several, I think in this picture there might be three above GEO, so three super GEO orbits and three sub GEO orbits, and they're all, I think in this case, plus or minus 1,000, you know, plus 1,000 for super, minus 1,000 for GEO, and then plus and minus 2,000, and then plus and minus 3,000. And we force the objects to um, essentially be in one of those orbits uh, if they're going to take an action. One of their actions could be to change from one orbit to another. I'll talk about that in a minute. But um, once they make a decision to change orbits, they can't take another action until they reach their target orbit and are back in another circular orbit, be it geo or sub or super geo. So this basically... Um, discretizes the state space and instead of everybody being in any orbit they want and having the uh, AI have to explore all of that, we, we kind of discretize things to make there to be much less to explore. Um, it also has another nice benefit now. I don't have to use numerical integration for these orbits, um, so that run I can just uh, use um, kind of simple algebra to figure out where I need to be as a function of time on these. And since these algorithms have to play millions of games in order to do this state space exploration and learn how to play. So computation time for each simulation matters. Um, so this also has a nice side benefit of kind of reducing the per simulation computation time by restricting the state space like this. On the right hand side of 12, um, I'm talking about what we did to restrict the action space. So again, rather than saying, oh, you know, at any time you can pick any transfer orbit you want to get between these racetracks, we restricted it even further. You said you can only pick a Holman transfer or a Lambert transfer. And we're only going to let you use the a certain combination of parameters for the Lambert. So um, for the Holman transfers, we basically, you know, that's pretty well defined between two circular orbits, so I don't have to talk too much about that. The only thing, um, so this is on the top right of slide 12, the only thing I have to explain here is if we're playing a game where every hour you're allowed to make a decision, um, in order to get where you want to be on a target orbit, you may want to um, not do the homing right now at the top of the hour. You might want to wait 30 minutes before you do that, before you initiate that homing transfer. And so we put that in as another discrete parameter. We, we basically discretize uh, the time from the current action time of, say, zero, top of the hour, to the next action, top of the next hour, into, I don't know, 10-second 10, 10 intervals or one-minute intervals, pick your favorite number, and we let you delay the action you're going to pick right now by that much, that many uh, times, and that's why you get kind of a family of things you get to pick from each time step. So so we let you use home and transfers to transfer between orbits. We also let you use home and transfers to try and intercept an adversarial um, spacecraft that's on one of those orbits. If it's top of the hour, you can compute all the possible Hohmann transfers that this delay lets you pick, and if there happens to be an adversary that's along that arc of places you can intercept at the time you'll be there, then you can pick that and call that for an intercept move. Um, and then the last thing is uh, we're letting you use Lambert, but we've pre-specified that, you know, the Lambert's going to take um, uh like one, quart, uh, one quarter of an orbit, if you will, instead of like half of an orbit, so to speak, like a Holman would. And we pre-specify the time, and then we pick a family of those based on some delays, and now we let you pick that set of discrete actions as well. And we don't let you change orbits with Lamberts. We only let you do intercepts um, arbitrarily for no particular reason. 
Right. So, so the bottom line from this chart, without trying to get too confusing here, is that we just want to make sure that there's a finite number of discrete states that the algorithm's working with, and also a finite number of discrete actions it has to pick from at each time step. All right. Now, the next set of slides I'm just going to walk through pretty quickly, and it's just to say that um, it's going to illustrate a game being played between two people, very simply, one mobile agent on each side, so just N equals 1, there's the two base stations. This is on slide 13, excuse me. This is an ECF frame, so you won't see um, you won't see the base stations rotate. Um, somebody have a question? No? Okay. Um, so uh, what I'm going to do in the next series of slides is I had to come up with a baseline opponent to play the game, and so I came up with a simple scripted opponent, and the simple scripted opponent can win against another person as long as the other person never moves. So <laughs> in other words, if you, never, if you never move any of your pieces or never touch anything and just let the initial conditions propagate according to gravity, gosh darn it, my scripted agent can beat you. Uh, it's a pretty low bar, but, you know, that's fine. Uh, this is a game I came up with, and I didn't really know how to win at it either, so I wanted to come up with something simple. So this is the start of the game, two base stations, two mobile agents. If you click to slide 14, the first thing the scripted agent is going to do is take one or more of its mobile agents, and it will either bring them up or bring them down, and that's simply to initiate a drift um, towards the other person's uh, base station. Uh, if it goes sub-geo, then it will drift forward because it's going faster. If it goes super-geo, it will drift backwards. But either way, it's going to drift towards the other person's base station. If you click to slide four, 15, excuse me, um, that's just showing you some propagation, and sure enough, there it is drifting forward. Slide 16, a little more propagation. Now it's getting closer, and it just so happens that now it's approaching the first enemy mobile from behind. Well, we put an event-based trigger in the scripted agent that says, hey, if you get close to an enemy mobile from behind, click to slide 17, do an intercept on that mobile, and take it out. And so that's what the scripted agent will do. It will drift up, take out the mobile, and then if it happens to be back on geo, it will either move up or down so it can resume its drift towards the other person's base station. If you click to slide 18, when it gets close enough to the base station, it will basically do a, an intercept to get inside that shaded region. And then again, if it ends up close to geo, it will jump up or down in order to initiate a drift back towards stone station. I change it to a star because now it has the flag, right? Okay, slide 19, a little more natural propagation, just drifting back towards my own station. And then when I get close enough on slide 20, um... I can initiate the final intercept to my own base station, get my flag back to my own base station, and win the game. So that's the basic logic that's in the scripted agent. Okay, so on slide 21, I had three students work with me uh, last summer, and one of them was doing a PhD in reinforcement learning, and he did a great job setting up a Python version of this game, very simplistic. It's AIGEM compliant, if you're familiar with AIGEM, which is a great kind of standard for reinforcement learning techniques. He implemented a, an actor critic um, algorithm that's really popular, the AC3 algorithm for deep reinforcement learning, and was able to train it using a whole bunch of curriculum training and educate me on how one trains these things, at least in theory, if not in practice. And by the end of the summer, in 10 weeks, he was able to teach the agent how to win this game in a three versus three, so that's three mobile agents on each side game, 
Um, normally, this little graphic on the bottom right of slide 21 would be a GIF animation, but I couldn't figure out how to get it to work in the PDF, and quite honestly, it's really underwhelming either. Anyway, he picked such a huge time step, things look like they're teleporting all over the place. But above that graphic on top, you can see this is a number of games played during training versus the win rate that the agent is seeing. And you can see around, um, he calls them time steps, but somewhere around, I think, 10,000 games. I'm looking at it right. Uh, yes, 10,000 games. You start to see the win rate climb. And by the time it gets up to, um, like, 20,000 games, it's actually really winning quite a bit. I think, actually, this might not be individual games. This might be epics, and the epics might be actually several thousand games each. So I think he did end up running several million games here. Now, some caveats to this. I had great computer science people, but they weren't engineers with an aerospace background. Uh, at the end of the summer, I found out he wasn't actually looking to see what happened in between the action time steps. So if we were taking actions every hour, if anything ran into anything in the middle between two actions, he didn't know about it. So um, there was kind of some teleporting going on, it turns out. His visualization and post-processing was pretty poor, which is why I'm not showing you the GIF. And there really wasn't any player interface. Um, we never had this thing play a person. We just had to play the scripted agent. But it worked, so we were pretty happy with that. Um, I'm going to gloss over slide 22 and 23. I can back up or somebody can follow up with me if they're interested. I had a, a really great student on slide 22 look at doing ensemble learning, which is training up N agents and then having them kind of vote, if you will, and come up with an advisory council of agents and then come up with a consensus output and then using that. And that can be both, both good and bad, we found out. But again, uh, if you want more details on that, just ask me after. And then on slide 23, again, I won't spend too much time here, but I had one student who um, really wanted to start looking at, to, well, if this thing learned how to win, how would we understand what it knows and how would we teach that to another person? One thing these algorithms are notorious for is, you know, they can become superhuman at these games, but they can't tell you why. They store knowledge of what, what they store what they know in a format that is um I call it inscrutable to humans. It is weights and links and numbers, and they don't mean anything to us necessarily. There is other efforts going on for things like explainable AI to try and solve this, but in general, um, these, these agents, once they get good, can't really tell you why they're good. So she started looking at some efforts around that, ways to kind of prod from an input-output point of view and see if we could learn what they know. So let's just jump kind of to slide 24 because I want to wrap up and leave a little time here. So I have three movies. Each movie is one minute each, so we should still be able to get through this. But let me just set them up. I've been working with HRL out in Malibu, um, which when I visited there made me question all of my career decisions ever because they work in one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. But they have some really good AI people who are working on um, a different form of, of AI. Uh, it's, it's kind of a not your standard deep reinforcement learning. Neuroevolution is the training method they're using. But they came up with a much better um, implementation of the game, something that kind of uses event-based integration checks to kind of see if things are interacting with each other in between action steps. And they have some nice animations, which is what's in the movies I provided. So let me just set the movies up, and then I'll give everybody a minute to actually kind of play them so they can see what I'm talking about. So the first one is going to be... Um, my scripted player that I just walked you through, the dumb scripted player in red that 
as long as the other guy doesn't make any moves or gal doesn't make any moves, um, the scripted player can win. Um, versus their neuroevolutionary trained agent that um, trained not against the scripted agent. It didn't learn to play by playing the scripted agent. It learned to play by essentially playing itself a la Alpha Star. But then in validation step, they put it up against the scripted agent to see how it would do. And it did really, really well. Not too big of a surprise. The scripted agent isn't all that smart. But um, the important thing to look at on this movie, um, which you can play. Um, Scott, I'm sorry. Yes, sir. What is the title of the first movie you want us to watch? Is it AI versus scripted three versus three? Correct. It's in green there right on that slide. Sorry, I didn't mention that. So uh, when you start it, what you will see, first of all, you'll see an actual animation of a game being played out, which is one of the things I wanted you to see. It's, it's, this is not in a Earth-centered Earth fix. This is an Earth-centered inertial. So in this case, you will see the base stations rotating around. But the bottom line is you'll kind of get to see the dynamics at play. You'll see the red and blue mobile agents jumping up and down, moving around. You'll see occasionally one of them will intercept one of the other ones. If you look on the right of the movie there's a little kind of uh, status board there and you'll see a check show up if somebody gets killed and you see a check show up if somebody gets the flag and you'll see the fuel so why don't you just go ahead and play um play that uh uh ai versus scripted three versus three movie i won't kind of narrate it um again you know, if it's playing correctly for you, you're just going to see these things going around. It kind of looks boring, right? Because, again, this game takes a long time for these guys to drift 180, 180 degrees across the planet. But if you kind of keep your eye on the right there, eventually you'll start seeing some check. Oh, somebody's been killed. You know, oh, somebody has the flag, blah, 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 blah. Um, but, you know, when we saw this, we said, okay, so the scripted agent wasn't all that smart and um you know by the time this movie gets to its end at about the one minute mark you'll see a uh, big surprise the blue neuroevolutionary agent wins but there's some interesting statistics that'll pop up at the end i'll just wait till mine gets to the end and kind of hope everybody's around there by the time it finishes Okay, so I'll just start talking. Hopefully you'll be getting close to the end soon. So at the end, you'll see, oh, game over. Satellite 3, which is blue, captured the flag, blue team 1. Now, if you pause it or if you don't have it loop, um, number of agents killed. Blue killed one agent. Red didn't kill any. Okay, so that's kind of lopsided. The red guy didn't kill anybody, even though, if you remember, I put a target, the other person, in the script. And now look at the last one, average fuel remaining. They started off with 1,000 meters per second each. Blue, on average, had 530 meters per second left each. Red, on average, had only 142. So it's a very lot. Not only did blue win, but blue also killed more people than red, and blue also had a lot more fuel left than red. So that's pretty cool, pretty interesting. All right, let me escape out of this movie. Uh -oh. Here we go. All right. Now, if we jump to slide 24, or excuse me, 25, this is the next movie, which will be AI versus AI 3 versus 3. Before you play it, I just want to say a few things. This is the final trained version of the neuroevolutionary agent playing another version of itself. And, again, you'll see the game play out, but the important point on this slide will be at the end when you see the match statistics. So why don't you just go ahead and play AI versus AI 3 versus 3. And we'll let it run. Um, now, again, this at this point, it's not my scripted agent playing red anymore. This is one of the neuroevolutionary AI players playing it, so it's not going to do any of the things necessarily that I talked about earlier. 
if you kind of keep your eye on the right, on the status board there, you'll see, oh, several people have been killed. Um, you know, as time goes on, somebody captures a flag. Uh, as time, a little more time goes on. Um, let's see. Now somebody else has caught the flag. And then as the game kind of winds up, all right, I'm going to pause mine here. You can let yours finish up. But once the game statistics come up, just look at the statistics. Blue won, but number of agents killed. Blue killed one and red killed one. Average fuel remaining, 357 blue, 290, pretty close on red. And then last thing to look at before we get off this movie is um, on the has flag column, they both actually scored. They both actually captured the flag, but Blue got it back to its own base first. This is a much closer game, which kind of makes sense, right? This is a trained agent playing essentially against a copy of itself. Um, so it's kind of interesting, but it's uh, let's exit out of this movie, and then we'll play the last one, and that will effectively be the end of my talk module, a little path forward. So if you go to slide 26, I'll just set this up, and then we'll play it. Um, this is uh, HRL wanted to look at scaling. How can we do one of the nice things about the neuroevolutionary approach is it scales well when you get to large numbers. So this game is a hundred on a hundred, hundred mobile agents on each side, and um, you're not going to want to try and keep track. Of, you can't even fit all of the status stuff on the side. There's a scroll bar that the movie won't cover. But what I want you to do is around 45 seconds or so into this game pause it, and um, I want to explain something to you, and then we'll let it finish. So this is AI versus scripted, 100 versus 100, X. Go ahead and play that. And again, roughly speaking, when you get to about 40 to 45 seconds, just pause the movie for a minute. I'll say something, and then we'll let it finish. So the blue is the AI, and you can see its agent spreading all out. The red is scripted. So pause it. Oh, excuse me. 15 seconds is what I wanted you to pause it. <laughs> Scroll it back to 15 seconds or let it play. Either way, you should see at some point during the movie all of the red agents all of a sudden make a huge maneuver down to the bottom, and what they're doing is they're intercepting a blue agent. But it's all of them. It's all, almost all 100 of the red agents do this. So anyway, if you've seen that or if you've managed to pause for that, just go ahead and let it play out. But we said it was just very visible here. It wasn't very visible when we played three on three. It wasn't kind of like to the naked eye. You didn't notice that happened. But we went to 100 on 100. It was wildly obvious that every single red agent all of a sudden kind of went to take out the blue agent. And when we were looking at it over more, what we realized is in the scripted player that I had come up with, there's absolutely no cross-communication between the individual red platforms. The trigger is if a blue agent gets within a certain distance of you from behind, intercept it. And so they did, but the problem was the trigger affected all of them at the same time. They all went after the same blue agent. The blue AI had learned, had basically, uh, again, it didn't train against the scripted agent, so it didn't learn that Red was going to do that or anything, but apparently it had come up with enough diversity that uh, – you know, it said, great, you've managed to take out one of my spread out agents. Um, you've blown almost all of your fuel doing it, by the way, because my scripted agent didn't really factor in the fuel cost of what it was doing. And uh, 
So once all the red agents had blown all their fuel, there wasn't really much else left it could do, and the AI was able to win at its leisure. So we just thought that was kind of cool and interesting. Um, and now we're modifying the scripted agent to kind of not be dumb and talk to each other and maybe only send one person out to go kill one other guy instead of everybody doing it. It's like kids at a soccer game. Okay, so slide 27, and then I'm done. What's my next step? So my next step is to add two elements to kind of increase the complexity of the game. Well, actually, three elements. The first is I want to add the sensing and tracking to turn this into a partial information game. I want to give each side probably the way we'll start it is I'll give each side some fictitious sensors and they'll have uncertain information, covariance information about where the other person's players are that will grow with time. And then they'll need to allocate observations or we may just have the observations updated at particular times. But the bottom line is it will go from a full information game where you know exactly where somebody is to a partial information game where you may call an intercept on somebody, but if the, if the uncertainty is too large, you may miss them. And so you may have wasted that fuel. So that will change the game and make it harder. We also want to add a communication network so that, um, as I just mentioned, I'm going to change my scripted agent so that it can say, oh, you know, you're going to target that person. That means I don't have to. Once I add a realistic communication network, that kind of coordination may or may not be possible. It'll depend on whether those two agents actually have the ability to talk to each other. So it's kind of a different form of partial information, but nonetheless realism I'm adding. And then the last thing we want to do is kind of decrease the granularity of the discretization we've done and kind of move towards more of a continuous state space and a continuous action space where we can take any orbit we want, be on any orbit, change our minds about what we want to do in the middle of a transfer, yada, 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 and basically make it much more like a real game would be where you don't have all these artificial um, constraints because we were trying to um, make it more discreet for the AI. And, uh, yeah, I'll gloss over 28. We need to build a visualization uh, in order for a human to play, and I've got some people looking at that via Unity, which is a nice game environment, but I won't dwell on that here. And then slide 29 is thank you, and I think I've only left like four minutes or so. <laughs> well, that's a wrap on this episode. Your feedback is very much appreciated. Please use our Twitter channel, at The Economy Space, to contact us, or send an email to podcast at spaceq.ca. If the podcast service or app you use offers the opportunity to rate this podcast, we would ask that you do so. Your review will help others discover us. Thank you.